Good morning. Hey, before we get started, I have a confession to make. Um, sometimes when I write my sermon, uh, I don't like it, and I throw it away, and I rewrite it. And that happened this week, so the title actually has nothing whatsoever to do with the rest of the sermon, so don't be surprised at that. Charlie, get off my stage. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the time that we can gather together with our brothers and our sisters to express our love for you, our gratitude to you, our wonder about you. And now, Lord, this too is our expression of worship as we give careful attention to your word. And I pray as the Bereans listens to the word with eagerness and then checked it against the scripture that we would be I'm diligent, likewise, as faithful stewards of your word. Help us to hear the word, and when it challenges us, help us to check it out to see if this is true. And let us leave here changed from our encounter with you. Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to inhabit both the speaker and the hearer, and that you would be working together with us to bring glory to your son, Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Some of you know that one of my uh, hobbies is casting lead, and there are a lot of different uh, hardnesses that I need in my lead, depending on the particular application. Straight lead has a Brunel hardness number, a BHN, of about five, and straight lead is great for casting uh, fishing weights and, and jigs and lures and downrigger balls and shotgun slugs and muzzleloader bullets. Um, but to shoot something faster, you need a harder lead. So when you're shooting handgun bullets, you need a uh, hardness of somewhere around 12 to 14. And then to increase the pressure or shoot it faster, you need something harder yet. So in rifle calibers, you need a hardness somewhere around 22. And uh, anything faster than that, you have to add something harder than lead to the base of the bullet, like uh, a copper or an aluminum uh, cap on the base of the bullet. And the reason for that is that if you shoot a lead that's too soft for the speed or the pressure that you're shooting in the bullet, the, the gas behind the bullet will actually burn a hole through the bullet and pass the bullet out the, 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 the chamber or the barrel, and it uh, radically affects the accuracy of the barrel. So to get my lead harder, I have to alloy it with other material, usually tin, which is very easy to get, or antimony, which is very hard to get unless you have an endless supply of the old-style linotype. So linotype is a great hardener of the lead. Now, once the lead is cast, I can't just guess how hard it is because the particular applications call for a particular hardness of lead. And so there's a way that I can test the lead to see how hard it is. So I'll take one of the cast bullets and I'll file a flat spot on it. Then I have a machine I'll put the bullet into and it applies a specific amount of pressure for a specific length of time on this tiny little steel ball, and it will make a dent in the lead. The softer the lead, the deeper the dent will be, the harder the lead, the shallower that dent will be. And then I place that uh, sample under a microscope that's got graduation marks on it, and I can measure how wide the crater is that I've just formed by um, the little divot ball. The wider the crater, 
the softer the lead. And by measuring that, I can tell very accurately how hard the lead is for the particular application I have. Now, I know you don't care about casting bullets and tin soldiers and fishing weights, but this is actually a very good analogy to what we need to be doing when we hear people, especially right now, when we hear people whose, whose voice says, thus saith the Lord, this is what the Lord is predicting, this is what the Lord says, because there's a lot of voices that are claiming to speak for God. And there are some of them who will claim that what they're doing is that they're uttering prophecy by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they are, but how do you know? I mean, how can you actually tell whether you should be listening to this guy when he gives a prophecy, and whether it truly is spiritually inspired, or when we need to disregard this person as a crackpot, as someone who's uh, trying to attract attention for themselves? I mean, let's be honest, what if God really was speaking through this person? You don't want to disregard them. You don't want to blow off something just because it comes from an unusual source or something that you're uncomfortable hearing. On the other hand, you don't want to be gullible. You don't want to just simply believe somebody because they come and say, thus saith the Lord, or God told me to tell you, or some uh, formula like that. See, I once knew a lady, she came to this church, so I'm going to have to be careful about this, but she claimed that she had the gift of prophecy. Her husband had recently left her for a younger woman, and then he came back when she wasn't home and took everything out of the house of value at all and left her with nothing. So here she was, you know, totally unable to help herself. Well, I would go over to her house, and I would chop firewood and stack it for her, and she really appreciated that. She thought I was a really wonderful guy. And so she, at one point, she um, wrote a, a letter of prophecy to every one of the elders of the church, in King James English, of course, but because she liked me, I stacked her firewood for her. You know, I had a really good prophecy. Mine was something like, um, my dear son, I have observed your hard labors, and my, my soul greatly delights in you. I will bless you and prosper you in all that you set your hand to do. Only in King James, James English. So, you know, I got that going for me. <laughs> to the other elders, though, she wrote them a letter which said something like, my soul will not tarry with you much longer, for I am deeply grieved by the sin which thou hast committed, and behold, justice is about to come upon thee. Well, one of the elders at that point had come from a rather charismatic background. He wasn't ready to just blow off a prophecy and say, you know, this is nonsense. And he came to me, and he was very, very concerned, because, because he wanted to know, um, is there truth to this prophecy? Should I be alarmed? And I don't know what sin... God would have, you know, grieved against me, but, but I don't want to just blow it off if, if it's true. Um, again, how do you know? How can you tell? And like I said, there's always someone who claims to be speaking for God, and, and especially you get these ecstatic, exaggerated prophecies anytime there's political unrest or shortages or wars or rumors of wars or there's a, an economic turndown or it's an it's a election year. You know, there's all kinds of prophecies that spring up at a time like that, and a lot of craziness goes on. How do you know if it's really God that's speaking? How do you know if you should listen to them? How do you know if you should just blow them off, if you can ignore them? I mean, we don't want to be fooled, um, but we don't want to be um, 
ignorant as well. After all, isn't it true that God has frequently used prophets who speak by inspiration from the Holy Spirit? I mean, the Bible is full of, of occasions when God has spoken to his people through the words of a prophet, uh, both in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament. So if God uses prophets to speak to his people and, he, and you hear a prophecy, how do you know if it's from God or not? How do you know whether you should listen? And the answer is, you test it. You place it under uh, the pressure of the test of the scriptures. You measure it according to the, the word of God. You test to see if it is consistent with the word of God because there's no reason to be fooled. There's, there's no reason to be, to be drawn away. You, you apply the, the test of the word of God. You place the prophecy, the, the word of knowledge, the word of insight under the microscope of God's word, and you measure it to a known standard. And that's what Paul is affirming for us in the passage that we are looking at today. Paul affirms that there are prophets today who speak to the church and then he gives us the test to apply their words to know whether it is God's word or not. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Now, as we've noted, that Paul's stay in Thessalonica was rather short, a few months at most. And when he left, it was not under favorable circumstances. And he wanted to know how the church was doing. He sent Timothy back up to Thessalonica to kind of smooth things out and to further the training, the education that they had. Timothy comes back to Paul with word from Thessalonica. The church is doing well, but there's some questions. And the particular questions they wanted to know is, what are the signs of the Lord's imminent return? And how do we prepare for the coming of Christ? And what about our friends that died and they're not going to be there for the rapture, what, what happens to them? So Paul is writing back to them to answer their questions, and more specifically, to prepare the church to be ready for the coming of Christ, whether Christ comes to us or we come to him. And, you know, that's still one of the foundation uh, objectives of the church today, to make the church ready to meet Christ, whether he comes for us or we, come, or we go to him. And that's what we want to know about, too. How, how do we make ourselves ready for Christ? And so in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, the last half, uh, 12 through 28, Paul gives um, three essential aspects of um, apostolic instruction. Uh, the first, he says, he's, he's addressing himself to the leadership of the church in, in uh, 12 through 13. He tells elders how they should relate to the congregation and how the congregation should relate to the elders. And then second, he talks about the fellowship of the church in verses 14 and 15, about the responsibilities that church members have towards one another. We covered those two aspects last week. And then the third aspect is that he, he addresses the church in their uh, public worship, you know, what should be included in public worship, and in particular how the word of God should, be, should evoke the worship of God. So like I said, we've examined the first two aspects of that last week, how we relate to each other, and now we deal with the third aspect, how we relate to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So here's three instructions here. They actually all pertain to the activity of prayer in verses 16 through 18. He tells them basically rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Now, rejoicing really ought to be the overarching theme whenever a church gets together. We should have this attitude of expressing to God praise, uh, thanksgiving, and Paul says you should always be doing that. And he's, he's, he's issuing a, a, a command, and it's not be happy. The command is um, worship God, be, be joyful in worship. I think that... Uh, it's appropriate that he would tell us that because now you look at so many churches today, you know, church worship time is incredibly boring and uninspiring. You, you come, you watch, you go through the motions, but there's no sense of this effervescent worship, this, this, this gathering together and joyful celebration to bring, to, to bring praise and honor um, to God. Secondly, he tells us to pray. Well, you know, he tells us to pray by telling us to pray. It's a little bit like the redundancy department of redundancy. And, you know, how does he tell us to pray? And a lot of us have problems praying. You know, we, we know we should pray. We know we should be praying more. We pray for two or three minutes, and we're all burned out. We prayed through the whole list, and we did that yesterday. So, you know, what is it that we should be praying for? Well, we should be praying for, for God's honor and for his kingdom, and we should be praying for one another and, and people that you know that have difficulties, and you should be praying for our church. You should be praying for the church worldwide, for its leaders, for their faithfulness, for their endurance in the face of persecution. You should be um, praying for um, the faithful revelation of God's word, for growing holiness in the church and unity in the church and for the, the cl clearer sense of mission of the church. We should be praying for our nation and for our government and, and especially for, um, for world missions, you know, uh, where, where the gospel is advancing and where it's meeting with resistance. We should be praying for those people. We should be praying for, for peace and for justice and environmental responsibility. We should be praying for the poor, the, the oppressed, people that are hungry, with the homeless, the, the sick. Uh, John Stott said, sometimes I wonder if the comparatively slow progress towards world peace, world equity, and world evangelism is not due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of God's people. Well, that's a rather scathing indictment, isn't it? You talk about the power that God has given to us in prayer that we find boring, difficult, onerous. And God says this is the, the power source for, for changing the world. Well, the third thing he tells us to do in prayer is exhorting us to give thanks. I mean, thanks ought to be the, the, the thing that characterizes God's people. We should... Remember to praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Thanksgiving belongs side by side with rejoicing in prayer in public worship. It's, there ought to be a place when we gather together for the general giving of thanks. We express God's priceless love for us in sending his son to redeem us and to correct the errors of sin. But I realize that we don't always feel like praising, praying, or giving thanks. And if you don't feel like it, then why should you? 
Verse 18, why should we be doing these things? Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why should we be praising God? Because that's what God wants from us. Why should we be worshiping God? Why should we be praying to God? Because it's a command from God. Well, let's move on. Verse 19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The word quench here is the word like for extinguish. It means literally it's the word used for putting out a fire. And that's very appropriate because we're told in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit came upon the church as tongues of fire. And there's this, this warmth and light of the Christian life that comes from this fire of the Holy Spirit in, inside us. And so there's a command here. This, it is a, in the form of a present imperative. That means stop doing something that you're already doing, that's already happening. Cease from something which is already in progress. Now, most commentators will refer to this as a reference to the use of the ecstatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. I mean things like speaking in tongues, words of knowledge, and most specifically, the words of prophecy. And the situation here is to be contrasted with that of the situation in Corinth. Remember, Paul writes to the church of Corinth because they had this over-fascination with spiritual gifts, with these uh, charismatic, ecstatic gifts. And he's basically telling them, cool your jets. You're getting way too far ahead of yourself on this. You shouldn't be just aspiring towards these phenomenal gifts. Apparently, though, the situation in Thessalonica is just the reverse. Apparently, they're looking down on the other believers who were enthusiastically seeking those gifts. And Paul is trying to say, you know, you don't have to have this exaggerated dependence on the gift, but, that, but then, too, don't condemn those gifts. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve Him. Of course, there's other things that grieve the Holy Spirit besides our ignoring the spiritual gifts. I mean, Paul's uh, spoken several times here about things that, that grieve the Spirit, that, uh, that uh, quench the Spirit. He talked about despondency and, and uh, idleness and immorality, stuff like that. Now, in the early church, there were individuals who were known to be prophets or prophetess. You know, that we have several examples like, like Agabus and Judas and Silas, Philip's four daughters. Um, there were others. The problem for us today is that there is a whole contingency of the church, the Pentecostals, the Charismatic, who think that God still gives prophets to the church, and, and God is giving this gift of prophecy, but they would add in the same measure and in the same way as he did at the beginning. So although this is a controversial subject, and we're probably not going to resolve it right now, there are some aspects of these phenomenal gifts, particularly the gift of prophecy, that I think all biblical Christians can agree on. And I'm never trying to persuade you to one particular systematic theology or belief over another. My only goal is that we be biblical Christians, that we can measure what we declare against the word of God. Now, because all biblical Christians would affirm the sufficiency and the supremacy of the written word of God, that is the measure by which everything else is, is held against. But we recognize, because we have this sufficiency and supremacy of 
the Holy, of the Holy Scriptures that there is a major difference between Paul's time and our own. Between the, 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 the time of redemptive history that we occupy and that which Paul occupied. And perhaps the greatest difference is that we have the completed Scripture. We talk about the canon of Scripture, that, the, that we believe the Scripture is complete. It is the full revelation of God. And we, we have the Scripture to measure it. So therefore, whatever prophets or prophecies or prophetic ministries there are today has to be subject to the written word of God. Are you still with me? Okay. Therefore, there, there, are now, there are now no prophets on the order of Paul and the apostles or of the Old Testament prophets, um, uh, no apostles like, like Peter, James, and John, and no prophets, no prophets um, like there were in the Old Testament or like, or like uh, John when he wrote the book of Revelation. It's just one S, Dave. It's not Revelations. Okay. <laughs> Actually, the word revelation comes from the first word of the Bible in Greek, which is apocalypsis, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's why it's not, there's no S on it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Let me back up because I need a running start at wherever I was going. There's no prophets today on the order that there were in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because if there were, if there were prophets of that same caliber and they spoke and their word was the infallible word of God, the whole church would have to do whatever it is they tell us to do, and their word would have to be entered into Scripture, right? Because if there, if there were prophets today on the same order of, of Paul and John and the Old Testament prophets, um, we would have to include their word into the Scripture and obey it. So it should not be difficult for us to all agree as biblical Christians across the board. I don't just mean in this room. As biblical Christians, we would have to agree that in the primary sense, we don't have apostles and prophets like we did in the Old Testament and when, this, and when the, the Bible was being formed. So we, but there are still prophetic ministries. So I think what's helpful for us to do here is to realize that we still have prophetic ministry in the adjectival sense of the word, and we should reserve the word prophet and apostle for the original prophets and apostles. So that we reserve the noun prophet for those guys while we still recognize that prophetic ministry is still taking place in the church. What do I mean by that? Well, if there's somebody who has an uncanny ability to um, interpret the Bible and to, to apply that truth to the church, he is, in a sense, using this prophetic ministry and if there's a particular word for a particular people in a particular circumstance, he's using in the adjectival sense this prophetic ministry of prophecy. Now, I realize the, whole, the old, old and New Testament doesn't make the distinction between those two, the noun prophet and the adjective prophetic ministry. But I think it would be helpful for us 
to make that distinction just so that we know what we're talking about. Now, Paul refers to these original prophets and apostles as the foundation in 1 Corinthians chapter, where are we? 1 Corinthians 3.11, that no one can build upon these foundations other, with, other than what has been laid. So you, you, we are not free through any prophetic ministry today to add to or to um, subtract from or to moderate anything which has been recorded for us from the foundations of the original prophets, apostles. Um, but like I said, nevertheless, there are, you, there's this uniqueness of the biblical prophets uh, that still be applied today. And be that as it may, Paul's advice here is not to treat prophecy with disrespect or contempt, that we are not to utterly reject something that comes from God or claims to come from God, nor are we to outright accept it. But rather, verse 21, when we hear a prophetic word, we are to test it, to measure it, to sift it, to hold it up against a standard that we know, like measuring the width of the crater of a bullet. We are to weigh it carefully. So the question that we really want to know is, what are the tests? How do we evaluate it? How do we measure whether something is truly of God, from God? I mean, the, aside from a gift of discernment, you know, what test do we have that we can apply when we hear a prophetic word to know that whether this is really from God or not? And although the text that we're looking at doesn't say particularly, the Bible is, is full of tests for measuring prophetic word. The first test is the plain truth of Scripture. Does what this person say measure up to what the Word of God already says? It will never contradict. God will never contradict himself. So we are to be as the Bereans. We are to take what we hear and whether, rather than reject it or accept it, we are to test it to see if, it really, if it's really true from the Scripture. The second test is about the uh, relationship between the divine human uh, relationship that Jesus had in himself, whether he remains fully God and fully man. You would think, well, duh. No, because there's churches in this community that do not believe that when Jesus was on earth, he had any divineness to him. He gave it all up. He was just a man. So that's another one of the tests. And Jesus said, test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone into the world. And then how do you discern between true and false? Um, uh, uh, those that acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. The third test is... Uh, whether the word is consistent with God's free and saving grace through Jesus Christ. Anybody who distorts this gospel is a phony. It's worse than that. Um, Paul says anyone who preaches the gospel other than this, let him be forever cursed. Anathema, Galatians 1.8. The fourth test is... What do we know about the known character of this speaker? Remember when Jesus told us to watch out for false prophets, what did he tell us? You'll know them by their fruits. They'll, that will be evident. So you know 
whether the prophet is trustworthy because his life will be consistent with his words. He'll, he'll have uh, a, a life that can be identified as, as a, a truth speaker. His, his character and his conduct will verify his words. By the way, that is a really important injunction for us to not listen to somebody we don't know, to, to not accept the word of, of a stranger because the church can't test his character. You don't know about his background. That alone would be a reason to not listen to the guy. The fifth test is the degree to which what that prophecy says that edifies, that builds up the church. A prophetic message will always strengthen, encourage, and comfort the hearers. It will bring conviction of sin. It will bring an awareness of God. It will help bring peace and, and order, and above all, it will bring love in the church, not condemnation. Above all, the sixth one would be, the man who says he speaks the word of God will be 100% accurate. A lot of the prophets, self-proclaimed prophets today, feel like they've had a great accomplishment if they're occasionally right, or mostly right, or usually right. What does the Bible say? You don't get a pass on occasionally right. You don't get a pass on mostly right. You're wrong once and you were executed because you said you were speaking for God and you lied. That's how serious it is. If they're not 100% accurate, they're not speaking for God. Don't listen to them. Now, once these tests have been applied to the words that are spoken, Paul encourages the Thessalonians, hold fast. Maureen, thank you, because it's that word that caused me to rewrite my sermon this week. Hold fast, kateko, what is good, reject every kind of evil. You've probably seen the tattoos that say hold fast, hold fast. Uh, a sailor who's a deckhand would have these words, these letters tattooed on his fingers right here, hold fast. And the idea is, you know, when the storm is pitching the boat around, you hold tightly to something that's secure. You know, one hand for the boat, one hand for your job. The pilot of the boat would have the tattoos on his fingers that says, stay true. Stay true to your compass course. Hold fast, stay true. And that's what Paul is telling us. You know, when you know that something is true, grip it tightly. When it is solid, hold on to it. Hold fast. Now, the exercise of spiritual gifts always needs to be tested. And the reason it needs to be tested is every, every single use of spiritual gifts is tainted by the human who's using them. Whether it's speaking up front, whether it's prophetic word, every use of our spiritual gift is tainted by the person, the human person that's using it. They're, they're corrupted by his own his own self, whether it is conscious or is unconscious, it, 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 it corrupts the truth. And so we have to measure what is true. And as with most spiritual gifts um, of the Holy Spirit, you know, on the one hand, we, we, we want to be open to the Holy Spirit. We want to seek his guidance, his direction, his, his presence, his power. But on the other, other hand, we want to be careful to discern and test that which is of the spirit and that which is infiltrated by that human agency of the one doing that. And all of this testing is to be done in a spirit of love, not condemnation 
for one another. Why is this important? Because we are living in a time of unprecedented, astonishingly low spiritual discernment. It, it just boggles the mind how ignorant Christians today are, how easily we get drawn in. For this reason, one of the most dangerous places you can be if you are not a mature Christian is on Christian social media or Christian bookstores because there are Christian men and women who mean well, but they're propagating something which is a dangerous lie whether it's mystical paganism dressed up with Christian garb or whether it's uh, the, the heresy of the prosperity gospel, they mean well, but they're, they're, they're wrong and they're aggressively marketing a, a false teaching. And the apostle John says, beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out from the world. As I said earlier, there. This is a time that we live in now which is ripe for false prophecies because we want to know. There's so much going on with the economy, with the wars overseas, with, with the presidential election, which is completely unprecedented, with a, a pandemic. We want to know what's happening. What does God have to say about all this? And there's always some attention seeker who says he knows what's going on and he's happy to tell you if you'll listen to him. Stay away from these guys. Don't listen to them. They are misled and they will mislead you. And the way to test someone's word is to compare it to the written word. Again, that's what the Bereans were doing. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. The Bereans were noble. They listened to Paul's word and every day they checked it out against the scripture to see if what he said was true. Preachers are to base their message on what is found in the Scripture, not on some clever logistic analysis that they are able to see that's escaped everybody else's attention for the last 2,000 years, and not by flights of emotion as they get up on the stage and pound the pulpit and make you feel like they must certainly know what they're talking about. They don't. Let's move on. Verse 23, Paul now um, is emphasizing the completeness of the task that God is at work to perform in us. Verse 23, uh, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. There are some theologians today who um, use this text as the platform for a, uh, another one of the many movements that began in the mid-1800s. This movement's called the Entire Sanctification or Christian Perfectionism. Using this text, they come to the conclusion that you can come to the point in life uh, where you no longer sin. And they believe this to be true, so they're not lying when they say this. And I know some Christians, you do too, who say they no longer sin. I know one guy, he's actually a good friend of mine, he says he hasn't sinned in 20 years, and he means it. Because he interprets this text to mean that you can achieve that. 
But what, if, what is Paul telling us here? Paul is assuring us that in the end, when Christ comes, up until that point, you can be in the process of sanctification, being made holy, but you will never be holy as long as you live in this fallen world, in this corrupt body. So sanctification will be complete, but not until the very end, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the meantime, we are encouraged to, uh, to begin this process, to, to, to work with the Holy Spirit, to, to live lives that are progressively more holy or more sanctified, but realize that we will never achieve perfection until we finally stand before the judgment seat of, of Christ. And the way Paul prays this prayer, he reminds us that this sanctification will, in fact, finally be accomplished. How does he know that? Because in verse 23, he says, you will be kept by God. God will keep you. God keeps us to the end. It is God who holds fast to us, not we who hold fast to God. And God's purpose in us will be completed. And no one was able to snatch us from his hand, John 10, 28. So the ultimate encouragement to these Thessalonians is that it's not that Paul has prayed a powerful prayer. The ultimate encouragement is he who is faithful will complete this. God will keep you. God will hold fast to you. God will finish the work he's begun in you. And how does he do that? By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the peace and the completion that comes when the Lord returns again. And at that time, then we will be made blameless and perfect. And the whole of Christian life hangs on this. It hangs on God's grace. It hangs on God's promise. It hangs on God's power, on, on God's faithfulness. Even when we feel like we're losing the fight, when we're slipping away, we are reminded with boldness and with assurance that it doesn't depend on us, but on him who is faithful. He will keep what he has held on to, and he will complete what he started. Verse 25, brothers pray for us. Now this is an odd thing for Paul to do because here's Paul who's an apostle. He has the authority to establish churches. He has, he has the authority to uh, tell them what they need to be doing. Here's, here's Paul who's, who's seen Jesus personally face to face on the road of Damascus. Here's Paul who has prophesied, who speaks in tongues, who has the capacity to do miracles. And Paul says to these guys, brothers, you, you Thessalonians, you're brothers with me and I'm a brother to you. We are equal. We're brothers and sisters before Christ. Now three times Paul has prayed for them. And now he says to them, brothers, Pray for me. What a, what a humble stance. You know, I, I need your prayers too. Verse 26. This one's uncomfortable for me. <laughs> Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. All right. The holy kiss was a symbol of a condition of peace between people. Whether it's 
whether it is underscoring that former antagonists have laid down their arms and they're at peace with one another, or they're at peace that there's no barriers between gender or race or social rank or slave or, 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 or free. Um, the kissing was also a, a sign of, of being family. So in addition to being a, a, reconciliation, a sign of reconciliation between antagonists, it's a sign of familialness that, you're, that we're... Uh, we're all one family. So in that culture, Nick Marvin, in that culture, kissing each other was that sign. And men kissed men on the cheek, and women kissed women, not, not the other way around. Um, in some cultures today, we have different ways of expressing that kind of, of peace and familialness. Uh, we have ways of con convey conveying our uh, affection and we do so in appropriate ways. So if kissing was not part of your culture, don't start now. <laughs> but the point he's trying to make is more than smiles and more than nods, he's asking us as a church family to engage in an activity which expresses physical connection. And that's easy to do with people that like if you're in a small group, you know, and you've walked through life with someone for a while, you've shared their joys, you've shared their, their miseries, you've prayed with them through heartaches, you know, and you've gone through life. Those people, those handful of Christian brothers, you know, you find it easy to, to hug and to, to, to bring close or to cry with. But see, what he's asking us to do is with the whole church, people you don't have that stuff in common with, that there needs to be a physical expression of our, our unity. So we have to be very deliberate about cultivating this strong, loving fellowship in our congregation, not just verbally, but this physical expression, because that's what Paul is commanding the congregation to do. Now, I'm uncomfortable with that, but I'm trying, really I am. <laughs> I love to be hugged by my family and not so much physical contact with anybody else, but I'm working at it. So I hope you will too. Uh, verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Here's a startling change into the first person singular pronoun. He's talking about himself. I don't know what's going on here. Maybe he's taking the, hand, the, the pen from his secretary. He usually has an amanuensis, a secretary right as he dictates, and then he signs at the end. Maybe he's done that. Uh, maybe he's, uh, he's asserting, in this case, his apostolic authority, and he's wanting to make his demand, his important demand, very clear. I don't know whether he feared that the words that he's just written are going to be neglected or perhaps suppressed by some particular group in the, in the church, I don't know, but he's using extremely strong terms here in order to assure that everyone, without exception, hears these words. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So here again at the, out, at the end of his letter, as in the outset of the letter, he wants the Thessalonians to rehearse this wonderful word, grace, and to remember that salvation is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus had lived for them a life that they could not live, and he died a death which he did not deserve. 
so that they could receive a forgiveness that, that uh, they did not pay for and might have eternal life with him for which they did not deserve and all of this at his expense and then given to us freely as an as a, a expression of his grace. And you know what? That same thing is true for this church 2,000 years later as it was to the Thessalonians. Again, Paul is reminding them that our growth, our maturity, maturity in the faith, our sanctification, our, our holiness is, that it is dependent upon God, that he's at work in us. And this progressive sanctification, too, is all because of God's grace. If you don't know that something is genuine, um, there's a way to find out. I mean, you just can't assume that just because somebody tells you or claims that it's true, that it is. Otherwise, you could buy all 10 watches on that guy's wrist down at Tijuana because they all say Rolex on them. <laughs> you, you can't just accept it to be true because somebody says it's true. Um, how do you know then if someone is speaking for God just because he says so? How do you know whether God is talking to you? You test it according to the word of God. Let's pray. We don't want to be gullible and drawn in. We don't want to be sucked in by all the false prophets. And Our resistance is up against all the people who make grand claims, especially when they see that they never happened. But on the other hand, we don't want to be closed-minded to the fact that you still speak to your people, whether it's uh, exposing us to your word or applying that word to our lives or speaking a particular thing to a particular people group. We affirm that you still are active by your Holy Spirit through prophetic ministries. And we don't want to have closed hearts to what you're doing. We welcome Holy Spirit anything that you're doing in the church. This is your church. We are simply the, the servants of Almighty God, his bride, his body, his building. Teach us to be open-minded, but help us not to be uh, foolish fodder for, for the false teachers. And Lord, I pray that you grow your church in unity and preserve our love and teach us to express our love for each other as we also learn how to express our love for you. We ask for your blessing in this church and on each one here in the name of Jesus. Amen.